I remember being completely blown away when I was in grade 12 English. And in grade 12 English, um, my English teacher had us read a book called Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. And so some people have read that book because they were forced to. Other people read that book because they like reading anything that was written. But this book was, was written um, by Emily Bronte, who wrote a lot of really, really good literature. Um, not just like easy eye candy kind of books. It's good literature. And what blew me away was my teacher's comment that every single word was crafted. Every single, every single thought, every interaction that the reader experiences as reading the book is all planted intentionally by the author. And I'm in grade 12, so I'm like, yeah, right, whatever. I'm like, it doesn't, like, seriously, like, who cares? And she just got, like, right into the text, and she's looking at specific words, and she's like, the word cold, right here. This word cold, and I remember this vividly, this word cold is letting us know that there is death coming. And I'm like, what the? Like, no, cold is because it's cold. And she wrote the word cold because it's actually cold. And that was my, my response because I was an arguer. So in class, I said that, like, it's actually cold. And she's like, it's cold because of death. And she's like, it's a story. It's not actually happening. And I was like, wait, what? And she was like, no, everything from the temperature to, the, to everything that happens in a story is placed there on purpose, especially with Emily Bronte. And so I'm, I'm reading through this book and I realized that, you know, uh, these literary terms like pathetic fallacy, where the weather follows the emotion, um, foreshadowing is where we uh, is is where something happens that is going to that points towards something that's going to happen later on in the story. These things are just developed inside of Wuthering Heights, and she leans into these literary devices and says, "This is what we're doing." And so, it was a very challenging book to read. It was very, very hard to read because in grade 12, I'm like, get to the good part. And the good part was all the literary devices that I was flying by. And so I'm just like, it was a very confusing book to read as well because the book intentionally echoes upon itself. So there are two main characters at the beginning. There's Heathcliff and there's Kathy. And Heathcliff and Kathy live in, they have two different upbringings and they're, they're kind of separated and that's that's what they are and as the story goes on later on in the book there is another Heathcliff and another Kathy and there's no distinction and so they don't use last names and so you're like is this Kathy one or Kathy two and is this and I lost the book I lost the cycle of what was happening in the book and it gets confusing and it became to my grade 12 brain it became inaccessible so that was something that that was kind of shocking to me that that foreshadowing is happening and that you you need to pick up the beginnings of the book if you're going to follow it all the way through and what I've discovered is that the biblical text is actually very much the same. 
As we read the biblical text, we actually need to understand that the Bible is cycling on itself and it's increasingly foreshadowing that which is coming. It's increasingly pushing forward towards what's coming. So our sermon series is called Outstanding Promises. And the purpose of this sermon series is to show us these outstanding, amazing, wonderful promises, but also to show us the outstanding, we're still waiting for, promises. And so that word was specifically chosen to do two things. Um, In the biblical text, we're going to see this happen throughout the narrative of the Bible. And the purpose of this sermon series is to actually bring some of the narrative all together for us. To bring it from, all the way from Adam and Eve, all the way through the main stories of the Old Testament. We're going to hit on five of them. And we're going to bring it to our 21st century expectation of God and understanding of God. And so we're starting off with uh, the promise of God's promise to Adam and Noah and Abram today, Um, and uh, we're just going to fly through them. We're not going to go super, super in-depth, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to piece together a narrative, and the reason I want to do this is because there is a ton of people in our world today that have no concept of how the Bible works or what the Bible is saying. And so they, they don't know how to read it. They don't know what they're seeing in it. And they're kind of like me reading Wuthering Heights going, is, who is this? What is going on? I don't understand the point. I'm waiting for the good part. And the good part is all the way through. And so the purpose of this series is to help us bring these things together. The promises that we're looking at today are hangers on which we discover God and what to expect of him. Um, So next week we're looking at Israel and Moses, and the week after that we're looking at David and Jesus. Um, And consistently we're seeing about how God is working to make things right. So today you can use your tablets, as I've mentioned before, ask questions or make comments about the message. We'd totally love to interact with you. At the end of the message, I'm going to be able to take some questions if you have any. And uh, and so let's get ourselves started. Um... The Bible is God's revelation of himself. A really basic concept. We've, we've said that before. Um, but it's something that we, that we have to understand as we get through, like especially at the beginning of the text, we have to understand that God is letting us know just one thing about himself and then he's repeating it and he's building on it again and again and again. And so we've got this repeating, reinforcing cycle that's happening as God reveals himself. So we're going to start with Adam's story, Genesis 1 to 3. Here's the scene. It's all set. God's created a perfectly ordered part of the world and uh, where humanity's brought into the image of God. God breathes into humanity and he says, I've made you in my image. And we have the image of God. And God's command is for them to spread out from that garden, for them to spread out and bring this order that they're experiencing in the garden into the rest of the world. And this is the vocation of humanity. The vocation of humanity is to bring the order of God into the entirety of the world. And uh, so even in perfection, sometimes when we look at perfection in our 21st century, we think of Freedom 55, we think of sitting idly by and doing nothing. But in God's view of, per- of perfection, there is still things 
that are going to be maintained, work that is still going to be done. And so the command of God is in Genesis 1.28. It says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God takes this command and he says, you, you need a vocation. You need to be doing something. And so this is what I am challenging you to do. This is the part that I'm not going to do. This is the part that you're doing. And so God gives that as our, as our vocation. And I think there's something important about that as well. Um, in a day where we start looking at ecology and environmentalism, this really does apply. Because it's not just like, oh, well, you know, that's just a... Uh, something that a certain political group likes. It's actually part of the human vocation where we look at what, uh, what we're supposed to be doing. But it doesn't just sit like that because as the story moves on, we come to one of the most famous stories of the Bible where Eve gets tricked by a trickster, the, ser- the serpent. Trickster is the Hebrew word for it. And, uh, and experiences both sides of what we know now as the human life. Um... Up to that point, if you can imagine, Eve has been in the garden and she has no context and no concept of evil. No context and no concept of what could go wrong. She has a very one-sided view of what life is. And, uh, And so she really didn't have a guard to be able to defend much against the trickster, because the trickster's using logic and using God's words against him in a way. And so she chooses to follow the trickster as her own choice. She chooses to follow the trickster and Adam does as well. And the whole world is thrown into disarray because of this human experience. What happens is, is if you put it in, in terms of chaos and order, chaos starts pushing in on the order and order stops pushing out. And so that's one lens that you could look at it through. So suspicion, lack of trust, death, fear, lies, they're all introduced into the human experience. They're all introduced, and humanity, the, the human experience becomes, it becomes what we like to say more rounded, but it becomes much less appealing, much less appealing. So what is God to do? This is, this is the breaking point where it's like how humanity takes that moment and experiences more of what we now know as the human condition. They experience it. They, they embrace it. They actually created it. And they're stuck. They're now ashamed Because God is so good, God is so great, God is so holy, everything good and perfect that they've experienced has come from God and and they know that what they have done has just separated them because that's not what God would have done to them. And so they're stuck in that moment where, where they're feeling the outcome, they're feeling the shame and they're like, this is not good. And they hide. They run away. Because they are afraid of God now. The one who didn't deserve this action. The one who, who didn't do anything to be, to be disobeyed or to be, to be not followed. Didn't deserve it. And so they run. 
And God in his mercy recognizes that if he forces himself and says, no, you're going to now do it my way and you're going, to, you're going to be forced now where you have to do it this way because you've screwed up. I'm going to make you now do it right. He knows that, that he could overpower humanity. He could force himself and say, I'm going to do it. But he loves humanity and says, no, I'm going to do something else. And he removes him from the garden and he introduces the consequences. You're going to experience both sides. You're going to experience the good and you're also going to experience the pain and the sorrow and the heartbreak. And I'm going to, you're going to live at distance. And so God separates himself from humanity and allows humanity to live at distance. This is so important for us to understand. When we're communicating the story of the Bible, one of the 21st century questions that we get all the time is, where is God? Where is God when the world's falling apart? Where is God when, when stuff isn't working? Where is God? I can't see your God. Your God must not exist. I hear it daily from non-Christians I talk to. Where is your God? And the biblical answer to where is your God is God is actually veiled himself. He has separated himself from humanity for our sake. Could you imagine for a second? Think about this. I did this at a Bible study once and, the, and the, a whole bunch of Christians and I was shocked at the response. But it was interesting. I said, I want you to imagine that God in all of his glory all of his splendor, in all of his power is about to walk in the room. Unveiled, 1,000% creator, omniscient, all-powerful God walks into this room and fills it completely. What does that do to you? What does that do to your experience? Where you just, there's, there's two ways. One, one, we go, that's going to be awesome. I'm just going to like just fall and worship and just be like, whoa. The other side is this, like, I can't handle that. I can't. Like, one of, one of the people that was in my Bible study when I did this, they were like, that thought terrifies me. That is a scary thought. And I think that there's something true to that where, where we see God in all of his splendor. Sometimes we make God out to be this nice, like, oh yeah, God's so cool, awesome. But then when you think about who God is in the grand scheme of things and then say, we're putting that God into your presence right now, it's just like, that's, that's overwhelming. And so God in his mercy veils himself and he reveals himself and he reveals himself slowly in stages so that we get it and we understand it and we grow into it and we go, I taste it and I see that this God is good. This God is good. And so God is at this point where he has veiled himself from Adam and Eve and he's hiding. And he says, this is, this is, in this moment, the rising action of the Bible. The drama of the world starts to unfold right here. And so God is the hero of the story and he starts to plant this literary device of foreshadowing right at the beginning. Here it is. In Genesis 3, 15, in, in the midst of the dirge of gloom and rebuke came God's surprising hope, his surprising prophetic hope, this foreshadowing. God says, I will put enmity between you 
the serpent and the woman and between your offspring or seed and hers. This, this is climaxed with the triumphant appearance of he. No doubt is a representative of the person in the woman's seed. He will deliver a lethal blow to the head of the serpent while the best serpent will be able to do um, is to nip at the heels of the male descendant. God is the hero here, and he's right now saying, here's the foreshadowing. Here's the moment. In all of the outcomes of what the fall is, God turns around and says, here it is. I'm going to give you a child who will defeat this one who has tricked you. It's all that's said. There's nothing more that's said. Now, as Christians in 21st century, we go, oh, he's talking about Jesus. Oh, he's talking about Satan. That we know way more of the story than where we are. We've got a little revelation, a little piece. God goes, I'm going to step back. You're on your own for a bit. I'm going to watch, but I'm going to save you. And it's going to be through his son. And so we have this first interaction between God and humanity after Adam's and Eve's introduction of evil. And God's already preparing the solution for humanity. This is grace. The narrative of the world says that this is judgment. The narrative of the world says that how should God be so unkind to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden just because they ate an apple? But when we see it through the lens of God and what God is doing, we see it as grace. It's God's only way to save humanity. God had an option. He could have forced his way on Adam and Eve, or he could have offered grace and said, I'm going to pull back a minute, and I'm going to save the entire race. I'm going to save humanity. And so God offers grace. This moment that we so often see as harsh judgment, God is offering solution and saying, this is grace. God veils himself and says, I'm going to step back. So he promised to make everything right. And God's seed, we're actually going to see God's seed is a cyclical term used throughout the Bible with increasing clarity. So it happens again and again and again. We're going to see it as we go through this journey. We're going to track God's seed. And God's seed will defeat the evil that's introduced in the human experience. So, the bad news about this, the hard news about this, is when God veils himself, then the human experience is now struggling kind of to keep order, but chaos is encroaching quickly. Chaos is happening where, where the world's plunging quickly into chaos and madness. And so the generation of humans, generation after generation, they forget God in so many ways. And they act in their own best interest. They're killing, they're destroying, they're doing what they feel like they want to do. They're following their own impulses, as I, um, the book of Judges says. And the chaos is taking over the entirety of humanity. And it's bad. I don't know if you've ever had this moment where you're looking at the news and you just go, something's gotta get done about that. Or you're scrolling through Facebook, if anybody still uses that ancient technology, and, 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 you, and you see a video clip and, and you recognize deep inside your heart that something has to get done. There, we can't sit idly by because to sit idly by is to be unjust and to be part of the injustice. And something has to get done. And God starts to experience this moment 
where God looks at humanity um, as very quick in generations go, God looks at humanity and goes, okay, something's got to get done here. This is not okay. And what he looks for is he looks for a person who, who can restart the human experience, who, can, who has hope to say, okay, maybe we, could, maybe we could get somewhere. And he finds a man and we know him as Noah. God looks at the world that's so broken and the Bible describes it very, very well. God looks at the world that's so broken and he says, okay, I could work with this Noah guy. If God doesn't act, now he's part of the injustice. And so God, in his grace, again says, I have to act. I have to redeem humanity. And so Noah comes and we hear the story of the flood in Genesis chapter 9. Or sorry, Genesis 8. Um, and so the story of the flood is tragic. The, the, the crazy thing about the story of the flood is in the... Uh, ancient Near Eastern world, where this Bible's written, anytime you see water, you remember that cold thing from earlier, it means death. Anytime you see water in the, in the biblical text, you're actually referring back to chaos. So the flood comes and takes over the entire world. And both in experience and in analogy, the world is overrun with chaos. And so we're experiencing this, humanity is experiencing this, this complete fall away from God and God has picked up one person and his children and said, we're going to start again. We're going to start again. And we know it's a start again because if you look at Genesis 9, 1 to 3, Genesis 9, 1 to 3 is a repetition of Genesis 3, which I already read, but it's modified. It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we recognize that. The fear, of the, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps in the ground and the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every, more, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So we see the parallel that's happening. This is our first cycle. You see the parallel where the vocation of humanity has now been adapted to adjust to the new reality. The, the reality before was you, grow, you govern over it, but after the flood, after chaos has taken over and, we've, and we're etching out this new piece where God's like, I'm going to create my order, I'm going to make things right, we see that it, that it comes differently. And so God has said, I am going to make it right. And now you see that, that the the uh, beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish in the sea, same as what you saw in the first one, but now they all fear you, and they're given over to you in your hand. And so this is so important. Um, this is the second week of our church here at Chris Hadfield, and so what I want to do is I want you to know that we serve a God of promise. And, uh, and so these these characters, Adam and Eve and Noah, they're archetypes for us today. See, Eve had a revelation of God that was God was going to make everything right. Noah had a revelation that God was going to make everything right. And as we see these confirmed, as we see the stories play out, we're actually able to start to build trust in God because this human experience, oh, okay, God's making it right. This human experience, okay, God's making it right. And so when, uh, when, when we see that in our life here at Promise Church, we could say, 
I'm part of that narrative where I have a revelation of God and I know that God is making it right. And I can trust that because I've seen it here in these stories. So God gave, God gave us this, this revelation of himself. And, and so our mission at Promise Church, we don't just look at the promises of God but we recognize that we are being invited to be part of foreshadowing um, that which God has been so famous for in the Bible. So as a church, we are not the solution for Bradford. We are not the thing that's going to make everything in Bradford right. We are a literary device of foreshadowing where what God calls us to do in this town God has called us to do something to make it right. So that's what we're doing. We're, we're doing something, just something little, that makes it right just for a moment. So that we're able to say, look, see what we just did? That's the type of work that God's doing. See what we just did over here? That's the type of work that God's doing. And our ministry becomes our proof that God is still at work. Because God is working through us. So every single time we get involved in a promise group, every time we get involved in a Sunday service, every time we get involved in anything that Promise Church is doing, because we believe that Promise Church is God's idea, God is at work in us making things right. That promise of God is being revealed in us as well. And we look forward towards Jesus. So the last one we're going to touch on is Abraham. And I'm only touching on Abraham the evil that, ex- that, that um, has affected Abraham in the world in a way he couldn't control was that he couldn't have children. Abraham was a rich man, and in his world, he had to, uh, to, to pass your riches off. You, you needed to have a son, you need, and he didn't have a child. And he was like, this is not fair. This is not okay. This is unjust. This isn't, this isn't cool. And God makes a promise to Abraham and says, you're going to have a child. You're going to be blessed. So in Genesis 12, 2 to 3, and verse 7, God says, go from your country, which actually turns out to be um, Ur, which is also summer, kind of the historical cradle of the genesis of of human civilization. If you look at at, uh, our research, we're like, oh, this is all coming from the same story. Um, But God says, so go from your country, and your, you and your kindred, and I will show your father's house to land. I will show you, and I will, sorry, I read that wrong. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. To your offspring, I will give this land. So what we've seen now is we've seen Adam and then Noah and now Abram and Abraham and God says to Abraham to your offspring. So this becomes more clear to your offspring I will give this land. And so we're it's seeing increasing clarity of what God is doing throughout the Bible. And one of the things that we can tell our friends, something that we could walk away with and say, guys, this matters, is if you're in a conversation about the Bible, because you brought it up, um, 
then you're able to say to them, the Bible layers upon itself. It layers step after step after step. And so this is where we say, because of the Bible layering on itself, the promises of God are true and faithful. So this seed, the story of the seeds, going to lead us eventually to the story of Jesus. It's going to lead us there. And, uh, and we're excited to see these outstanding promises and how that's going to push us, not just into the biblical text, but also into our view of the future. And uh, so I'm going to take a couple text messages. I think I have one and or two. And so here we go. So Genesis 3 says that God removed Adam and Eve from the garden so they went to eat of the tree of life and live forever in sin. So it's God's mercy that protected them from that consequence. Absolutely. So we see God's grace played out in another way in that text as well. So it's not just God protecting them from the intensity of his presence, but also protecting from the tree of life. And, uh, and so that's an excellent addition to the comment. So as we, as we go through this, I am excited to see God lead us to a point where we're able to start to tell the story of God. The good news of God today in our world is God has promised to live with us and he's promised to make it right. When you hear good news of the gospel, that's our story. God has promised to live with us. He's promised to make it right. And he does that in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there is, uh, there is what we are um, leading towards. I'm going to pray, and, uh, and then Devin and Michaela are going to lead us in a final song. Um, after that, I'm going to ask if people are interested in helping us tear down. We do have a, a one o'clock time that we have to be out of here. Uh, we're totally able to have some coffee and chat and whatever, and then we're going to uh, we're going to be out of here by one o'clock because that's when our permit is up. Um, so let me uh, let me pray. God, I am grateful. I am in awe as you reveal yourself in the biblical text concentrically you show us in cycles of your faithfulness and even in our lives you've shown us your faithfulness you've taken steps to bring us closer to you and deal with our problem of shame where we want to push away from you God, I thank you that you surprise us so often with your love. And Jesus, I pray that as we start to understand your gospel, that that gospel would become contagious. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us and bring us to a point where we are able to just have the boldness and the words to speak the truth that your gospel is that you're going to live with us that you're going to make everything right and you do it all in the person of Jesus. And so we rely on that. We trust you. And so I pray that you would be with us as we go this week. In Jesus' name.